0: Good morning. Our sermon scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, I pray that our hearts will be warm towards you as we look at your word, as we're reminded of what you've done for us, of the identity that you've given us and how we are to live that out. Please may may we be receptive to your word. May we be willing to think hard and to listen hard so we might hear your voice, the voice that speaks into the into the depths of our hearts where we desperately need to hear. We pray all these things in your blessed and your beautiful name. Amen. Well, if you haven't yet, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be primarily in verses 22 to 23. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Having the Bible open in front of you is the best way to be able to participate in the sermon. But as you turn there, uh, I want you to know on May 3rd, 2023, this past year, crazy to say that 2023 is now last year, uh, the Surgeon General, the U.S. Surgeon General made history by issuing a Surgeon General Advisory on Loneliness. Now, what is a Surgeon General Advisory? It's a public statement made by the Surgeon General, who's kind of like the chief doctor of our country, I think, Uh, But it's a public statement about health issues facing our country, and they're usually recommended steps for how we can handle these um, crises or health issues or whatever's going on. Now, the reason why uh, the May 3rd general, uh, US, uh, uh, what's it called? The Surgeon General Advisory was so unique was that it was about loneliness, and we don't typically think of loneliness as a health issue. So if you have work tomorrow, Try waking up in the morning and calling and saying, I'd like to take a sick day because I'm feeling lonely. And see how your boss responds. (laughs) We don't typically think of that as a health issue. And yet the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, writes this. He says, Our epidemic of loneliness and isolation has been an underappreciated public health crisis that has harmed individual and societal health. Given the significant health consequences of loneliness and isolation, We must prioritize building social connection the same way we have prioritized other critical public health issues such as tobacco, obesity, substance use disorders. Together, we can build a country that's healthier, more resilient, less lonely, and more connected. In other words, what the U.S. Surgeon General is getting at is that research shows that loneliness has health consequences. It makes us unhealthy in all kinds of ways. And there are so many desperately lonely people in our country now that we can view loneliness as analogous to a health pandemic, a health crisis. And that's why Dr. Murphy writes we must prioritize building social connection. And it's funny, every pastor when he hears that, in his mind thinks, oh, you mean like a church? The amazing thing, brothers and sisters, we have a health pandemic, a loneliness pandemic, and we have the cure. It's the body of Christ, people who are called out of darkness, to be a family. But realistically speaking, if we're honest, Christians can oftentimes be just as lonely as non-Christians. And the reason is because the causes of loneliness in our country are are deep and wide. There are structural causes to why we're lonely. There are ways our society operates that pushes us towards isolation individualism. I mean, just think about the suburban dream and how we've constructed where we live. To live in the suburban dream means that you will live in a house, and you will work somewhere else, and you will eat and play somewhere else, and those are all connected by car, which means you can exit your house into your attached garage, get into your car, open up the garage door, drive out, go to work, and I mean, you don't really have friends at work, right, because that's not professional, so you just do your thing there. Then you can go to a drive-through Never have to talk to anyone. Then you can drive back home, drive into your attached garage, lower the door, and boom—you didn't have to talk to a single person, have a single genuine human interaction your entire day. And it's because that's just how our—that's the dream—to have that suburban house with an attached garage. There's just things within our, our society that push us towards isolation, that make it difficult to have genuine personal interactions with people. But beyond that, there are also personal choices we make. And we all spend a lot more time on our screens rather than prioritizing being with people. And this is particularly significant for Christians because it's not just that we're lonely, but our identity as a Christian is a communal identity. You were, if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. You are a member of a community. Jesus saved you so that you would be part of that community. And yet we live in the same kind of structural frameworks that induce and compel us towards this highly individualistic way of living that hinder us from, again, as the U.S. Surgeon General put it, building social connection, or to use a more Christian phrase, hinders us from being the church, being the family that we were created to be. This is one of the reasons why I've been rethinking one of our main church rhythms, our small groups or our community groups, Uh, And I've been thinking through this for the last four to six months. I've been calling other churches, seeing how they do theirs, how they've thought through theirs. And beginning in February, we're going to be rolling out some changes. And one of them is a name change. They're now going to be called community groups. They're not going to be small groups or home groups or Bible studies or a thing we do Wednesday night. And the reason we're changing the name is not because that's the trendy thing that every church calls them, although it is what every church calls them. It is trendy, so yes, we are being trendy. But it's not because of that. It's because the name reflects what we want to be doing there. It's not a Bible study, primarily, although the Bible will be involved. It's not a prayer meeting, primarily, although prayer will be involved. It's not a worship meeting, primarily, although worship will be involved. That's primarily a community group, a place where we build a vibrant, beautiful, Christ-centered community with other people who've encountered the same Jesus as us. That's the first change, we're changing the name. But secondly, and this is a little bit more substantive, we're getting rid of our single-gender discipleship groups. Um, so that we can focus on community groups. If you did your membership interview with me at Vine Street, in other words, if you're younger and you've only been here a few years, I likely told you, "Hey, we have discipleship groups and community groups. Pick one or the other." And what we've found is that it, it, there's actually something that's self-defeating by splitting our time and our attention. And so we want to just funnel all of our time and attention into one rhythm: our community groups. But secondly, the reason why we're getting rid of discipleship groups is to allow our community groups to meet weekly. And we're leaving it up to each group because each group is different, you know, time constraints and all that stuff. But there's a real benefit to meeting every week, to building those relationships week in and week out, reading the Bible together, praying together, sharing our lives together. And to go along with these changes as we've kind of been rethinking through our community groups, I thought it'd be helpful to begin with a short two-part series on biblical community. Again, we're not doing this because it's a trendy thing. We're doing this because it is the identity that we have if you're a Christian. And so I want to spend a couple weeks looking at that in 1 Peter. This morning, we're going to be looking primarily at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. And then next week, we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And what these have to tell us about our identity as Christians who've been called into a community. So our outline for us this morning is, again, we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. our first point, because of what Jesus has done. Second point, love one another. Third point, for you were saved and born again for this. So again, first point, because of what Jesus has done. Now some background on 1 Peter. uh, Peter is writing to a dispersed set of churches across a pretty large area, about the size of California, that would be modern-day Turkey. And it seems from the letter that these Christians were undergoing attack or persecution of some kind, and it was substantive enough that they were beginning to question things. And so Peter writes, well, question, is in question their faith, question God's goodness, whatever it might be. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage the Christians to remain ch- steadfast in their perseverance. And in fact, he ends uh, his letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, by telling them, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Know the Jesus who bought you with his blood. Don't question that. And be, be steadfast. Don't give up. You know, As we go into 2024, there will be circumstances in our life that may cause us likewise to wonder, question what's God up to, maybe even difficult enough to make us question the gospel and our faith personal tragedies, maybe you'll see deaths or miscarriages or sicknesses or just great life disappointments. Maybe you'll see apostasies, friends and family who used to walk with Jesus will walk away. Whatever it might be, there will be things that will come as well. And so they'll come to us as well that may cause us to question and wonder what God is up to. So beloved, hear what the Spirit writes to the Christians 2,000 years ago. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And our first point is, again, because what Jesus Jesus has done for you, and what I want us to notice is that Peter, writing this letter of encouragement, he begins with these nine beautiful verses of praise to God for what God has done for these Christians. This is chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. This is how he begins. This is the most important thing for these Christians to know up front. Remember what God has done for you. Again, because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's look at um, verses 3 to 5 in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, what, what does all that mean? What means this? Beloved, if you have placed your faith in Christ and you're his, three things have happened to you. One, you have received a new identity. You are an, a new person. Again, verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Something substantive inside you has changed doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter who you were in the past. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. If your faith has been put in Christ, you are a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. And that new identity was not something that you got by your achievements or by your moral goodness. It was not something that was voted on or up for debate, but it was simply by the sheer, inexpressible, unbelievable grace and mercy of our God who loves And so while, yeah, you may struggle and you will struggle with the flesh until Christ comes back and makes you whole, you are a new creation, a new person. That's the first thing that Christ has done for you because of this, because he's made you new. Second, because you have a secure future. Look at verse 4. You've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Your future is secure. You know how this all ends if you're Christ's. This is a living hope, a hope that gives you life, a hope that's sure. When the Bible says hope, it doesn't use it the way we do. We use it as in like, oh, I hope I see you again. It's like wishful thinking. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it is an assurance that we can have certainty over because it's already been guaranteed by something that's happened because Jesus died and then rose again. And because he died and rose again, you can have assurance, hope that is sure that your future is secure, that one day you will, you will go and you will reign with Christ and you'll see him face to face. And any sorrow and suffering that you've experienced in this life, it'll be like a blink in the eternal presence of our Lord. Your future is secure. So first, you're a new person. Christ has made you a new person. Second, your future is secure. Third, Your present is secure. Look at verse 5. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, if you're Christ, God himself, the king of the universe, to whom there is no comparison, he guards you. Every footstep you take, he watches over you. Your future is secure, yes, but your present is secure, too. And he may allow difficulties to come in. He may even allow you to stumble, but he will not allow you to fall. Your present is secure. Now, here's the question. Why, okay, you know, we're going to be mostly looking at Peter's exhortation to the church. This is what you should do. Why does he begin with these nine verses that are just, you know, kind of a tons of words, tons of ideas why does it begin this way? Well, the f- first reason is because Christianity, at the end of the day, is not primarily good advice about how you can live better, how you can have a better life, how you can have a blessed 2024. Christianity is, first and foremost, good news about what God has already done for you. If, think of it as a journalism analogy. If, if, if Christianity was a newspaper, whether digital or paper doesn't matter, either or. Oh, it should be, anyways. Um, if Christianity was a newspaper, it is not primarily the opinion column or the advice column. It's not God writing us advice for, again, how you can have a better relationship or how you can raise your kids better or how you can succeed at work. It's not an opinion column. It's not God making arguments for his moral framework and for why his ways are best. It's the front page news. This has happened. God came to earth as a man. And he bore your sins And he offers pardon and forgiveness to every rebel who's willing to lay down their weapons and come before him in brokenness. What are you going to do about it? This has happened. It's just, it's news. And so that's one reason that Peter begins reminding the Christians again this is what God has done for you. It's not based on what you've done, it's not based on how well you're following him now. This is what he's done for you. He's made you new, he's secured your future, he's secured your present. But secondly, the reason why Peter begins this way is because our holiness as Christians always flows from our salvation. It is not the cause of our salvation. We're gonna, again, we're going to be looking primarily at Peter telling us to do things. And if we don't begin with verses 3 to 12, we may begin to think in the, our heart of hearts, well, this is why God loves me, because I do these things. Or this is why he accepts me, because I'm going to do these things. And when we do that, we get the cart before the horse. This is what God has done for you. He's loved you when you were unlovable. He sent his son to die for you when you were dead in your sins. He's given you a new life, a new hope. He's given himself for you. And so because of that, we'll get to the rest of the sermon. The message of the New Testament always goes this way. You are beloved, so live as one who is beloved. You are forgiven, so shake off your guilt and forgive others. You are a new creation, so don't live as if you're still the old person. You have been set free, don't live as if you're still in chains. You have been adopted and are a child of the king, don't live as an orphan. The New Testament always begins with what God has done definitively once and for all through Jesus. And now that you have received such a gift, go and live in view and in light in response to that. So that is our first point. Because Jesus has done this for you. Is that how, what it is? How does it go? Sorry, guys. Because of what Jesus has done. Thank you. Because of what Jesus has done. First point. Second point. Love one another. And here's where we get into the text we're, we're mostly going to be looking at this morning, which is verses 22 to 23. Let me read them for us again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Now again, to situate ourselves in the letter, Paul begins with this praise of God and reminder to the Christians, this is what God has done for you. Because he's done this for you, he's made you new, He secured your future, secured your present. He then gives four commandments of how we live in light of that. The first commandment he gives in verse 13, he says, so set your hope fully on the grace you'll receive when Jesus comes back. Make that your hope. Secondly, in verse 15, he says, because Christ has done all these things for you, be holy in everything you do. Just as the God who called you is holy. Then the third commandment he gives, verse 22, love one another earnestly. And then the fourth commandment is in chapter 2, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk or the milk of God's living word. Because Christ has done all these things for you, this is what you should do. Now, we're going to be focusing on that third commandment, love one another. Um, And just so you know, the way that Peter writes this commandment, he he makes a love sandwich. And so he's, he has the command, the meat of the sandwich, love one another. And then he has on uh, before and after reasons for why we love one another. And so we're going to begin with that command, love one another, and then we'll get to the reasons for why we love one another. What does he say? He says, second half of verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So first question, who are we to love? He says love one another. Don't miss how profound that is. He tells us who we're supposed to love. It's interesting. Our culture, we, we love the idea of love. We're all about it. We will put it on yard signs. This household is for love. And we love loving, you know, like the kind of amorphous, unclear humanity out there, right? You just need to love and be kind to that generic humanity out there. How about the guy who cut you off in traffic? Maybe not him. He deserved that choice word you shouted in your car. Or how about your boss when they threw you under the bus in a staff meeting? You don't need to love him. Or maybe the barista when they royally messed up your order and then they were not apologetic at all. When we make it kind of amorphous, well, we just love people. And then it's easy to say, well, yeah, I love people and feel good about yourselves, but Jesus tells us who we're to love. Love one another. So look to your left do it. I can see whether you're doing it. Look to your right. Look behind you. This is great. Look in front of you. This is who you're supposed to love. Again, not some idealized humanity out there, not the church. These flesh and blood people who have paths and histories you may not know about, who make mistakes, whose breath smells in the morning, who can be quirky and all kinds of Funny and not funny ways. This is who you're to love. Love one another. But he doesn't just tell us, and and, and by the way, yes, God wants us to love all people. He wants you to love your neighbors and your family and your friends. But Jesus Christ died so that you might have a special love for those who are his, for other Christians. So he tells us who we should love. We should love one another. But he also tells us how we should love. He says, love one another earnestly fervently. It has a sense of persevering in the way you love. Don't, you know, work hard to love people even when it's difficult, to not give up loving one another. And in fact, Peter cares so much about this that he he repeats the same adverb later in his letter, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. He makes it explicit there. Keep loving. Yeah, it's going to be hard at times. Don't give up. Work hard. Persevere to love one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, the love we ought to have for one another is a love that doesn't give up easily, that works hard to persevere. Now, I have to tell you something. You will not receive any brownie points from our culture for working hard to love people who think differently than you who maybe are passionate about different things, who are in different socioeconomic statuses, who are in different generations than you, like, no one's going to give you brownie points. In fact, some people might accuse you of enabling people who have the wrong opinion, whatever that might be. Likewise, if you love one another earnestly, you probably won't be able to accomplish as much in your life. You probably won't be able to live your best life now because of the time and the relational cost, you probably won't become your most accomplished, impressive, comfortable self. If you love one another earnestly. So, why would anyone do it then? Why would we love one another earnestly if no one's going to give us accolades to do it and, and it's, and it's going to be costly? Well, again, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We do this because Christ first loved us, because of what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus gives this command explicitly in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Beloved, the only way that we're going to love, not, again, the kind of nebulous humanity out there, but the flesh and blood sinners that we've covenanted with in this church, the only way we're going to do that consistently is if we keep our eyes on Jesus and what he has done for you and what he has done for me and the fact that Jesus is head over heels in love with each one of you, even the ones that you struggle with. And if your Lord loved that person enough to shed his blood for them, then we can love one another too. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. So again, Peter tells us who we should love, love one another. He tells us how to love. Love earnestly, perseveringly. Work at it. Don't give up. But he also tells us love one another from a pure heart. Again, that's verse 22. I'm sorry, yeah, verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, in the Bible, purity can mean different things. Sometimes it can mean kind of like ritual purity, like at the temple. Sometimes it can mean um, just like an undivided, like blessed are those who are pure in heart. They have one love, one one affection. But sometimes you can have a moral sense, like morally pure. You're not morally dirty. And that's the sense here. And we, we know that because there are two other places in the New Testament where it uses that phrase from a pure heart. And those are very clearly having a moral sense. And so what Peter is saying is love one another and the way that we love one another has a moral framework within which we do that. In other words, in our culture, we does not mean to love someone. It just means we'll make them happy, affirm them, just be nice to them. And, and yes, we should be nice to one another. That's true. But we have a f- moral framework within which we love one another. It tells us what is right and wrong, good and evil. That's and God's law. And so our goal in loving one another is not first and foremost to make each other happy, but it's actually the glory of God and conformity to Jesus. And what that means is that sometimes, sometimes, if you do this with love and with humility, the most loving thing you can do to a brother or sister in Christ is confront them if they are living in sin. And to not bring it up because it's awkward or because you don't want to offend is actually hateful because the wages of sin is death. Death. So there's a moral element to our love, too. We love one another from a pure heart. And so again, because Jesus has done this for you, because he has made you new, because he has secured your future and your present, because he has so loved you, so love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So application for us. So love one another. You know, even in a church our size, which is like the size of a large community group at some churches, to be frank, even in church our size, cliques can form. Because we naturally connect with some people more than others, or we've known some people for a long time, we don't know others. And that's not inherently wrong. Like we have backgrounds and chemistry and ways that we connect with people. But one way we can apply this is, again, the command here doesn't say, hey, come and love your Christian friends. Love those you already know. It says love one another. And so one way you could try to apply this to loving one another is find someone in this church that you really don't know that well, who maybe you don't naturally have this amazing connection with, and just make a commitment. Hey, 2024, I'm going to get to know this person. Ask him out for coffee, have him out for dinner. I'm going to befriend this person I don't know. Because Jesus has commanded us to love one another, and you can't love people you don't know. That's one way. Secondly, love one another earnestly, perseveringly. How can we apply that? Well... Whenever we have a church of sinners, which is every church, by the way, whenever you have a church of sinners, that means that Christians will make mistakes and will wrong one another and will hurt one another. And so what will it look like for you to love this body of believers earnestly, perseveringly? Is there a relationship that has become strained in 2023? Will you work to restore that? Will you strive to love even someone who has wronged you? Again, none of this is possible unless we keep our eyes on Jesus. But with his power and for his sake, because he's our Lord whom we love, and we'll give anything for him. Well, then we can, we can do this. So love one another earnestly. So our first point, because of what Jesus has done for you, Second point, love one another. Third and final point, for you are saved and born again for this. Again, Peter sandwiches this main command in his love sandwich. He has two pieces of bread, which are the reasons for why. So we're going to look at those. Why should we love one another? In verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, Because your souls have been purified, love one another. That's kind of the logic there. Now, this is a a mouthful. What does it mean? Well, let's, let's think through it together. Purified your souls. When was your soul purified? When was it cleansed from sin? When you became a Christian, when you were washed by the blood of Christ that erases every stain and every sin. This is referring to when you became a Christian. Since you have become a Christian, in other words, love one another. He says, having been purified by your souls, by your obedience to the truth. Again, what does that mean? It's when you became obedient to the gospel. When did that happen? Well, again, when we became Christians, as Jesus himself said. Well, it's 1 John 3, 23. This is Jesus' commandment, that we believe in the name of his son. I'm sorry, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. To obey the gospel is to believe in Jesus. And so all he's saying is, look, when you became a Christian, it was for a purpose, because he continues then, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That word for there is signifying purpose, intent, for the goal. You've been born again. Christ forgave you. He washed you clean in order that you might show and receive a sincere brotherly love. That's the first reason in his love sandwich. And then the second reason, which is verse 23, is basically reiterating the same idea. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Because you were born again for this. Because the only way that you can love one another earnestly is if God changes us. as if we're born again. So, in other words, why did Jesus die for your sins? One, to forgive you, yes. To overcome death, yes. To give you a living hope through the resurrection, yes and amen. But what Peter is saying is that also Jesus died for you so that you would love those in this room. Jesus considered it worthwhile to shed his blood to be abandoned by the Father so that we would love one another. So, follow-up question. Do you see Christian community as one of the reasons that Jesus died for you? And so it is central to how you understand what it even means to be a Christian. And maybe an even more to the point question, did 2023 reflect that for you? Again, we don't want to just think the right thoughts. We want to live the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now, here's here's the reality, guys. Because we live in such a busy, transient, individualistic culture, your drift will always be towards isolation. Always. You will never drift towards loving one another. Everything in our culture is moving against it. Everything in our sinful hearts is moving against it. So, so, so we have these cultural pressures that kind of lead us towards living individualistic lives. What do we do? Well, clearly we need to sell our possessions and move into a common community together and share our lives together. I'm Kidding. We're not going to do that. Been thinking a lot about Yeah, no. Man, no one even laughed. That was the moment of, of levity to kind of... What do, what do we do? Well, the first thing is we recognize the reality is that we're going to have to work really hard to do this. Because of the pressures against us, if we want to obey First 1 Peter one twenty two, love one another earnestly, it's going to require our hard labor. It'll never happen on its own. It'll take your time and your commitment, and you're willing to sacrifice for it. And there will be days and evenings and weekends when you're tired because your life is busy and you're overwhelmed. And the only thing you want to do is just veg out by yourself. And if you give in to those feelings, we will not be able to obey 1 Peter one twenty-two. We will not be able to be the Christ-centered, vibrant, spirit-filled community that Christ has made us to be. And ironically, in the moment when we kind of give into those feelings, we're like I'm not going to force myself to be with people, I'm just going to be by myself, it feels better in the moment, but in the long run, your life will be impoverished. Again, we're in an epidemic of loneliness in our culture. And that's not a Christian saying that, that's the U.S. Surgeon General saying that. So Christ has called us to be this because he's done such things for us. One way that you can obey 1 Peter 122 is by joining and committing to a community group. And you might be thinking, oh, I see you did there, Mike. You got us all worked up, and then you worked it into your community group thing. And, and, I, and I need to be honest with you, there is nowhere in the Bible that it says, thou shalt be part of a community group. This is not a biblical command. But I do believe that the principle behind it is very biblical. The principle behind a community group is that we actually know one another well enough to love one another, and then we love one another. And that's why we have community groups. And, and, and um, let, me, let me shoot straight here for a minute, if you will let me, as one who loves you. I hope you know that. It will be very difficult to fulfill 1 Peter one twenty two if all we do is come to church once a week for Sunday morning. It just will. Now, I need to follow that up with, some of you can't come more than that. You're not physically able, and you would if you could, and I get that. And don't feel any guilt. We love you. But for those of us who are able-bodied and able to, if our main interaction with each other is the five to ten minutes of greeting time once a week, You'll, you'll love those you're already friends with, but you can't build relationships again on five to ten minutes of chatting once a week. It's just not possible to know each other well enough. And so if we want to be a church that really loves one another, and that would be a beautiful thing, an aroma of the gospel to a desperate world. If we want to be a church that loves one another because of how busy we are, because of the drift towards isolation in our culture, we've got to build it into our lives, these regular times where we gather together to read scripture and pray and share our lives. Again, if we just think, I'm just gonna wait and make it organic, I don't wanna make it forced, then we'll just do it as we have time. If we do that, it won't happen. Because I'm busy, you're busy, I'm tired, you're tired. So if you're not part of a community group, I really encourage you to join one. Uh, Again, we're taking January off, but when we start back up in February, I really, consider you, I really encourage you to consider joining one. It won't be convenient, I promise you that. It'll probably be uncomfortable at first if you don't know the people in your group. But this is how we fulfill the command of Jesus to love one another. It's by spending time with one another. If you're part of a community group, recommit yourself to that group. As much as you are able, be there every time they meet. Don't make it like, if I have time, I'll come to community group. Make it, we're going to be there, and I don't know if I have time for the other things in my life because my church community is that important to me. Because Christ died for you so that you would be part of this church. And he's worth everything we can give. So because of what Jesus has done for you, again, love one another. We spent a month looking forward and looking back during Advent, remembering Christ's first Advent when he came, a light into darkness, looking forward to his second Advent when he'll come and make all things right. And as we reflect on that Christ is the light, you know, in the time of year where it gets dark early and we get kind of sad (laughs) and we don't see the light of day, and we remember that Jesus is the light who brought life and hope and peace into our lives. But brothers and sisters, he did that so that you would be part of his church so that you would love one another. And in loving each other, we are a beautiful room of the gospel to a watching world. So by the grace of God, by the power of his spirit, because Jesus has bought us and owns us and loves loved us first. Let's live into that reality in 2024 more and more. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you will do the work that only you can do. Only you can bring strangers and make them family. Only you can change the leper's spot, spots and melt the heart of stone. Only you can forgive us. Only your blood can cleanse us. And only you can then form us into the community saturated in the gospel, full of the spirit that you've called us to be. We offer our lives to you. May you do with us as you see fit. May our lives bring glory to you. Pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.